0: If you would open up to Romans chapter Four, we're going to get there in a little bit after we do some a little introduction I want to share a little little snippet of my story uh out of college. My first job um was an english teacher at uh in Grand Terrace at Terrace Hills middle school and when I showed up at my job i I came into the classroom and I um, I didn't really do a whole lot. I I just kind of sat there and let the kids do what they want, and um, and just kind of sat out the day and did that kind of day after day, week after week. And uh, my principal came in and said, uh, "Mr. Barry, uh, you're supposed to be doing a job here, not just coming in and sitting in your classroom." And I said, "Well, Miss Bunnell." Um, The Bible says, worketh not. And uh, if those who work, um, they're credited wages, but we're supposed to not work and just believe on God who justifies the ungodly. So I'm just trying to put into practice what the Bible says, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so get off my back. And she didn't like that very much. Neither did my colleagues. Neither did my parents, and neither did the students. Now, did that really happen? No. When I got my first job out of college, I was scared to death, and I worked like a madman to, uh, to do the best I could. I'd never been a teacher before in the public school system, and so I was up late. I, I didn't realize when I was in college that if English majors become English teachers, we grade a lot of papers. I was like, man, I should have been a math teacher. <laughs> and I did a ton of grading, and uh, had to learn my classroom management. And if I wanted to get a good job review, I just had to work really, really, super hard, and so on. And um, but really enjoyed those first, you know, I think four years, five years before Cornerstone sent us off to seminary, and then we started working at Cornerstone. And then I came to Cornerstone, and. I sit in my office, and I just kind of sat around, didn't do anything. And Pastor Milton came in and said, Mike, you're supposed to be working around here. You're the music pastor. I said, Pastor Milton, it's, the Bible says worketh not. And somehow he didn't accept that. But I think you get the point. When it comes to just every other aspect of our life, um, we are called to work and to do diligent work. And we're called to, to get out there and love our neighbor and and to try to do good for society if you're a politician you try to be a good politician hopefully if you're uh uh, just working in society you try to do that well you you have certain rules at home you expect things of your kids right and um but when it comes to spiritual things when it comes to the things of god and our relationship with god it is completely turned upside down And it is so contrary to the way that we just live in our day to day life, that everything in us, everything in our hearts and our conscience bucks against the way the Bible says that you and I are saved. And it's very important for us to get that concept that we can't just look out at the world and say, and look at the way the world operates. And it's right, right? If you want to make a sports team, you work hard. You want to make it to the next chair in the orchestra, you work hard. But when it comes to your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it is completely opposite. And if you try to bring even good righteousness into that relationship, you will be doing exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells you to do. This morning our message is called The God Who Justifies the Ungodly. We're going to be looking particularly at Romans 4, 5, but I want to set up some of the historical background or some of the context of Romans before we jump into this text. Uh, Romans was written about A.D. 57 by the Apostle Paul from the city of Corinth, probably on his third visit to Corinth. And, um, Paul states his purpose for writing this epistle right in the first chapter when in uh, verse 15 he says, So much as it is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He's like, here's here's why I'm writing and here's why I want to come visit you, is I want to preach the good news of Jesus Christ for hell-deserving sinners to you. To Christians. And as Pastor Milton has reminded us many times from this pulpit, the gospel is not just for unbelievers, it is for Christians. And Paul wanted to go talk to Christians in Rome and preach to them good news. And he goes on, he says, For it is the power of God to salvation. The gospel, the good news, is the power of God to everyone who believes, to both Jews and Greeks. Pastor Milton says in his uh, gospel primer, such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. And so that's Paul's purpose in this book. And his theme is the righteousness of God he says in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That means from start to finish, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When Paul says the righteousness of God, he's not talking about a righteousness that just God has. He's talking about a a righteousness that God grants to you and I, and that he declares over us. And that's really the theme of this whole book. And so we're gonna have to get familiar. I know if you didn't grow up in the church like me, when you hear the word righteous or the or righteousness, it just sounds weird. Most people don't use that term unless maybe back in the seventies or eighties you're like, hey, righteous, bro. Or you're thinking about like, you know, the righteous brothers, right? But other than that, it's just a weird term. It falls strange upon the ears of the average person. And so we're going to try to really get used to that word and figure out what it means and why we should rejoice in that term, the righteousness of God. But Paul doesn't jump right in to the righteousness that's granted to us by God through faith in Christ Jesus. He actually moves into another kind of righteousness as he begins to exposit and lead up to the gospel he ends up starting in the book of Romans with what does righteousness from the law look like? If you and I were just going to try to be good enough for God according to the law, what would that look like? And he lays out basically three different sources for the law. We have the law the law in nature, just if you look around from society to society everybody has ideas of what the law is what righteousness is what justice you just stop anybody on the street and they're going to tell you here's what's just people know this basic idea of justice and while it's warped since the fall people have opinions and it's it's in nature it's in their conscience it's written on people's hearts according to the Apostle Paul. And it's in Scripture. It was right there in in the Old Testament leading up to this time that Paul is writing. And so you have God's requirements on the conscience and nature and in Scripture. It's everywhere. You don't need a preacher to go out and tell people what the law is. People know it. No preacher required. But if you want to know what the gospel is, you got to hear a preacher. You got to hear it from the word of God. And so, you know, the, the Bible basically tells us when it's talking about a righteousness that comes from the law, that really, how does that get revealed? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now keep that in mind. God's wrath is revealed on the ungodly, to the ungodly. And, and, and God demonstrates through the law that people are deserving of his wrath. And it's clear. It's not even debatable according to Romans 1. Later on in Romans 4.15, it says this. Paul says, because the law brings about wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Law equals wrath. It is not as if uh, man is basically good, but just hampered by a few sins here and there. And then God comes along and then he just basically kind of lays out this unattainable, capricious standard and just says, Obey my rules or else, just to be persnickety. No, no that's not really what the law is. Actually, the Bible tells us, Romans tells us, the law is actually good. It's good that God publishes his law in our hearts, in society. And in his word, can you imagine a society where there were no laws for anybody and nobody had a conscience? People just did whatever they wanted without any respect for law in nature or their hearts or in the word of God. No, his law is good. And if it could be kept by us, it would bring us great happiness. It would, in fact, be immoral and unkind for God to leave us without the law but then he gives us law and conscience, nature, and the word of God so that we can understand what's required for us to le- live near him, how that we fall very, very, very short. But then in the scriptures, he begins to show us how he's orchestrated a means by which ungodly people can live near a holy God. In order for him to get to his main punchline and his main Theme of the gospel. He reminds us in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. Our tongues are deceitful, we curse, we have bitterness, we don't fear God. And his law shows us that we're guilty and it stops our mouth. It gives us a knowledge of sin. Moreover, when God's law, whether it's in nature or conscience or in the scriptures, when it begins to impact us, we have an immediate response. And it's, it's not always a healthy response, but it is a response. Romans 2.15 says this, that, that uh, Gentiles or pagans by nature, they have this law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness uh, between themselves and their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In our conscience, what we do is we either accuse others, when we, when we are confronted with the law, we either accuse other people or circumstances, or we blame God, or we make excuses for ourselves. Sometimes we become uh, hyper self-aware, we get this super ego, and our conscience becomes overactive, and we're always berating ourselves, or we're really nitpicky against other people. Sometimes we will sear or deaden our conscience, So the law can can start to provoke our conscience. It can reveal that maybe somebody doesn't have a conscience, but it's not going to really give you any fuel or or any hope with that conscience. By the law, sin becomes exceedingly sinful, according to Romans 7.13. But then Paul begins to take a turn in about the middle of chapter 3. And he says this in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Remember this righteousness of God. It's a righteousness that comes from God. It's revealed in the law. That means the Torah and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on who all who believe. So now there's a different kind of righteousness, totally apart from this other thing, it's a righteousness that's coming to us from God himself through faith in someone named Jesus Christ. And so in some, here's the big problem that Paul is presenting to us in the epistle of Romans. Is that his Jewish brethren, and truth be told, even the Gentiles, are seeking to establish their own righteousness. Romans 10.3 we seek to establish our own goodness, our own righteousness. We, we want to defend ourselves. Schofield uh, states it this way as he describes legal righteousness or self-righteousness. He says this, the futile effort of man to work out under law a character which God can approve. I love that definition. It's the futile effort of you and I to try to work out a character that God will look down and say, "Ah." Oh, that's my man come to heaven that's futile will never happen that's the problem paul's solution is this romans ten ten. with the heart one believes unto what righteousness it's with our hearts we simply believe unto this righteousness that god's going to give us Schofield says righteousness here alludes to that righteousness of God which is judicially reckoned to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to explain that more and more. We're going to keep turning around that idea that God is giving us something that is not our own. The righteousness of God is all that God demands and approves and is ultimately found in Christ himself who fully met in our place all the requirements of the law and it's through imputation it's through God crediting to our account Christ uh, that becomes our righteousness and so Paul comes full circle Paul preaches the gospel to Christians in Rome in order to comfort them and to arm them with against their ceaselessly fickle consciences he gives them great comfort, not from the law, but from Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to apprehend this God that Paul speaks of in Romans, particularly where Paul calls him the God who justifies the ungodly. And this is the very thing that can free our consciences and empower us to conve- to confess who we are, to confess who we aren't, and to become who we are in Christ. And In the email yesterday, we asked you to read Romans 3, verse 20, down to Romans 4, 8, if you didn't do that. Shame on you. No, we're under grace. It's okay. We're going to preach it right now. Let me go ahead and read Romans. I'm actually going to read Romans 4, verse 4 and 5, and then we're going to jump into this. Romans 4, verse 4 says, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? That makes sense. Just in the normal course of life, if you go out and do work, somebody gives you a paycheck, you don't say, thank you for this gift. No, you earned it. Right? Then he says, however, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as as righteousness let's pray lord we ask that your spirit would open up this text to us this morning that is totally contrary to everything that we see in the world help us through your spirit in christ's name amen as we consider verse 5 we're going to ask two questions of it what kind of people does god save and how does he do The saving. Left a lot of room for you guys to try to write in notes and stuff, but I want you to mostly listen. But I'm a note taker, so if you take notes, that's cool. What kind of people does God save, and what does this tell us about our God? Notice what the text says that Paul says it's somebody who believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. That's one of the most amazing titles of God in the whole Bible. He is. Him who justifies the ungodly. He is a God who justifies ungodly people. And this is a surprising title for God, is it not? Think of other descriptors for God in the Bible. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He's a righteous judge. we just saying he's a mighty God. He's a living God. He is a creator. But here he is called the God who justifies the ungodly. And Paul is laying out this doctrine for us, and he knows full well that as soon as he says that, that there's already people that are going to remember what he just said in chapter 1 and say, wait a second, I thought the wrath of God was revealed on all ungodliness. And Paul, I seem to remember in Psalms... I remember Psalm 1 where it says, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. In the way of the ungodly shall perish. I seem to remember in Psalm 7 where uh, your word says, My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. You're telling me that God is a God who justifies the ungodly. That seems patently contradictory to the Old Testament and what you just told us a few chapters ago. Ecclesiastes says, there is not a just man on the earth that does good and does not sin. If it is true, the writer of Ecclesiastes is not telling us that there aren't so-called just people on the earth. He's saying, there's nobody who's so-called just who does good and does not sin. That means all of us are in trouble. If, Romans, if uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 7 and Romans 1 are the end of the story, every one of you all is in trouble. But Paul comes along and says, God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He later says in the next chapter, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, some would charge Christianity. They would say, you know, Christianity, that is a crazy religion uh, because they say that God saves wicked people. And notice how the scripture actually accepts this charge. You think about, Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, the guy who killed several people out in New York in the 70s. This guy was arrested, went to prison, had his throat slit, almost died, and was worshiping Satan. And then somebody gives him a Bible. He starts reading the Psalms. Lo and behold, he goes back to the guy who gave him the Bible. He says, I'm believing this. And now if you were to look him up on YouTube, you would see one of the sweetest believers you've ever laid eyes on watches his, his testimony and how he just hates talking about a sin and how he loves talking about Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that God is a God who justifies people like David Berkowitz. Or how about God is a God who justifies people who think they're goody two shoes, who think they're too cool for school. They're that kind of sinner. He also dies for them. He loves them. It's interesting, you know, as Paul calls God, the God who justifies the ungodly, he's really not too far off from the way at all, the way that God describes himself when he reveals himself to Moses. Remember Moses said, would you show me your glory? And then God says, okay, I'm going to pass by. I'm going to put you on this rock here because you wouldn't be able to handle it. And then God pronounces his name before Moses. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord God what does he say merciful and gracious long-suffering abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity transgressions and sin whoa he's a god who takes delight in forgiving sin and then right after that almost in complete contradiction with what he just said he says by no means clearing the guilty Vising the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. It's like, which is it? Are you the God who will not forgive sins? Are you the God who will forgive sins? And God says, yes. <laughs> I am the God who will forgive sins through the one who has taken sin upon himself, Jesus Christ. But I will by no means clear anybody outside of christ he is a god who justifies the ungodly think about this what what kind of people is he describing the word ungodly it goes beyond wicked it's it's a higher it's a more negative word these are people who are ungodly that means they are not godly that means they are not righteous that means they are not good that means they are not law keepers Not those who have cleansed themselves from their ungodliness. We're talking about ungodly people God declares righteous. Spurgeon says this, quote, We, according to the natural legality of our hearts, are always talking about our own goodness and our own worthiness, and we stubbornly hold to it that there must be somewhat in us in order to win the notice of God. Now God, who sees through all deceptions, knows that there is no goodness Whatever in us, he is the God who justifies the ungodly. And think about the biblical examples. I mean, it's, it's not like the Bible has just hinted around about this kind of stuff. All you've got to do is just do a quick survey. Adam and Eve, ungodly. Abraham, idolater, liar, ungodly. Isaac and Jacob, ungodly. Aaron, the guy who built the calf, right? Ungodly. Rahab, prostitute ungodly samson he's a good guy ungodly gideon hall of faith ungodly lot oh wait there's the one guy that's righteous okay righteous lot okay job's friends job's friends ungodly but guess what at the end of the book they're in (laughs) right Uh, david ungodly Woman at the well, woman caught in adultery, Peter, Paul, Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the Corinthians, the Romans. Let's go into church history. How about Augustine? Anybody know the story of Augustine? Ungodly. Monica prayed for him, but still, ungodly. Jerome, Luther, Edwards, Spurgeon, Susanna Wesley, me, you. Ungodly. God is a God who justifies the ungodly and you might think wait a second I thought salvation was for the good. And this seems so contradictory to the way that our world operates, right? I mean, most people that are practicing law, if you absolutely know that somebody's guilty, you know, your preference I think would be to go defend somebody who's actually righteous, right? Or not guilty. But God comes along and he knows you're guilty. And he stands up for you. He has set up a system, Spurgeon says, by which with perfect justice, he can treat the guilty as if he had been all his life free from offense. Yes, can treat him as if he were wholly free from sin. That's completely upside down from the way the rest of the world works. And this makes the gospel available to you and it makes it available to me. Are you this morning unconverted? Do you come to church, but you're just kind of going through the motions? Guess what? I think you could be described as ungodly. And God is in the business of granting you a righteousness that is not your own. Do you just kind of rarely come to church? Do you just kind of show up once in a while? Guess what? You're probably ungodly. Have you tried to doubt God's existence? I did. I remember kicking a can down the street when I was in high school saying, there is no God. There is no God. There is no God. Guess what? I was ungodly. And God justified me. Have you attended uh, to just the outward forms of religion but with no heart in them? You've been coming to Cornerstone since you were a kid. You just kind of show up. You do a wanna. You do this. You do that. Uh, you look really good on the outside, but nobody knows what you're really doing at home. On your phone, on the internet, this and that. And you don't really have a heart for God. And maybe you've seared your conscience, but you know what? The spirit can awaken your conscience through the law. And all of a sudden, you could be sitting here right now like, man, I am ungodly. What does God want to have to do with me? Well, guess what? If you're described as ungodly, then you qualify. God is in the business of justifying the ungodly and he will justify you as you are so this is an amazing description of god but how does he do the saving according to this verse how does god come along and do this kind of saving let's look at verse 5 again however to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited it is reckoned it is imputed as righteousness. That's, uh, you know, we, we hear this stuff so often, you know, that we forget how crazy this is. That God comes along and he does something for you that is the opposite of what you and I deserve. Let's kind of tear down in this verse what God is doing for you and me. He is actively justifying the ungodly. He is declaring you and I righteous. He's actively doing that. He looks down at ungodly people and he says, I am now treating you as though you were godly. This is not us justifying ourselves. You know, Elihu in the book of Job, he got really ticked off with Job because he felt like Job was justifying himself it says in Job 32.2, the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. That's not the kind of justification we're talking about. We're not talking about the justification where, you know, somebody breaks into your house. It's late at night. You get out a weapon. Boom. You shoot him. You kill him. And everybody says, you're justified because that person broke into your house. No, this is the kind of justification that you're the one who breaks into the house. You are the sinner. <clears throat> you are the goody two-shoes. Pick the level of sin, older brother, younger brother. God comes along and he actively declares you good and righteousness from the righteousness and goodness of his son. And notice that the verse starts out that this is For him who does not work without works, does not work for himself. I like the way the King James says it worketh not. This is somebody who does not come and do any labor to clean themselves up. They're not coming to they're not coming to sacrifice. They're not coming to lay their life down. They're not coming to set a good example. This is an, an ungodly person totally apart from their own works. John Gill says he does not work in order to obtain life and salvation. He does not seek for justification by his own doings. This doesn't mean that the believer doesn't do some works after justification, but when it comes to you getting saved and you getting into the family, you getting into eternal life, you worketh not. And he declares you and I, Righteous and notice that this declaration is through the instrument of faith. It says his faith is counted as righteous. This person who believes his faith is counted. Those of you that are like grammar people, this is a passive voice, passive participle. Uh, This is the faith isn't doing any action here. Something is happening on the faith. The faith is actually an instrument. It's through the instrument of faith. That righteousness is passively credited it's actively credited by god on behalf of the instrument of your faith you might be like what in the world are you talking about all right let me break it down the word is counted or is reckoned logizomai this is a reckoning term god comes along and he looks at your account and not only does he see nothing in your account he sees that you've got stuff in your account that shouldn't be there. You've robbed people. You, you've been robbing people on the Internet, getting their money from their account, putting it in your account, so you're way in the negative. God comes along, and he looks at your account. He withdraws your dirty money, and he places that on Christ. And he takes all of Christ's goodness and law-keeping, and he puts it in your account, and then he declares that on you and begins to treat you like that only because you've believed. And when we talk about faith here, we're not talking about uh, faith in faith. Some people get this this mistaken notion of just having faith in faith. Back in the day, you guys might make fun of me. I really liked Tim Tebow back in the day. And I just remember him having this great comeback victory against the Bears, right? It was awesome. And it was miraculous. And the coach came up to Tim Tebow afterwards and he said, you just got to believe you got to believe just faith and faith. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about faith and faith. We're talking about faith as an instrument to be placed on someone else. And that's Jesus Christ. It's the difference between saying like, if I said to you, I am getting nourished by my fork. My fork is nourishing me. You would think I was crazy. If I started eating my fork, you would you would really probably put me in an insane asylum. But my fork picks up the meat and I put the meat in my mouth. It's the meat that nourishes me, but the fork is the instrument that gets the meat to my mouth. That's what faith does. It's actually God grants you faith, and it's an instrument to now place yourself on Christ and for his righteousness to come to you, to be declared over you. And by the way, this is a, what we call a declarative righteousness. It's not like some have said in the past or some other religions that God somehow infuses, mixes his righteousness into you or he somehow makes you more godly. And then God looks at Mike Barry and starts seeing him to work out his faith. He sees me getting more godly. And then God says, oh, Mike, based upon your use of the infused grace, I now declare you righteous. Or I say you're righteous because you really are. No, this is an alien righteousness, the old reformers used to say. It's a righteousness that's only Christ's, that's been given to you. You are declared righteous. You don't become righteous. It's imputed to you. It's totally based upon what Christ has done in his own keeping of the law, in his own righteousness, that God looks at you and I and he says, even though you're ungodly, you were ungodly, you're still ungodly, I now declare you godly, righteous, not on a sliding scale, all the way. You are as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's part of the exchange that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are in him and we get that righteousness. Luther says it this way. In other words, this is a righteousness of Christ of the Holy Spirit, which he, which we do not perform, but receive, which we do not have, but accept when God, the father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. It's the non-laboring belief of an ungodly person who is counted by God as righteous, that is justified. And this, if we really grab onto this, this really will help us with our conscience. This really will help us with our battle with sin. And that's why Paul wanted to preach the gospel to Christians is because he knew that Christians still struggle with the law in their conscience. Christians still look at the Bible and be like, Oh no, I'm not godly. I'm not growing the way I thought I would by now. And we need to have this constant refresh on our justification that our conscience may be continually appeased through Christ and this declarative righteousness. You know, the as, again, as we look out at the world, <clears throat> there's lots of different kinds of righteousness that aren't necessarily bad. Like we talked about, if you want to be a, a good leader, a, a good president, a good politician, there's certain things that you try to do for the people. In the Old Testament, you'll notice that all these kings, it starts off by saying, this king was a good king. This king was an evil king. That's speaking to the, a particular type of act of righteousness. When you are raising your kids, you tell your kids, hopefully, okay, I need you to get up at this time and we're gonna, sit, we're gonna do math, we're gonna do drums, we're gonna do Bible, whatever. And here's the reward system. If you go to youth group, we've got these wonderful point systems. All the kids get excited about points. And that's great. It's wonderful. There's ways that we can motivate one another. We try to help our kids grow, to be respectful, to say yes, ma'am, yes, sir, shake hands, things like that, look people in the eye. That's all part of this thing of active of righteousness but Paul comes along and says we need to be careful that that stays over here and then when the law comes in and we actually begin to realize wait a second i'm trying to do what my parents say i'm trying to do what my youth pastors say i'm trying to do what the code says and i can do it outwardly but there's something in my heart that bucks against it I was listening to a, a preacher this week He tells his daughter, you need to go clean your room. There's lots of reasons why he tells his daughter to clean her room. So she doesn't become lazy. She just wants to run out with her friends. Doesn't want to really take responsibility. And he can get his daughter to go clean her room. But here's what he can't do. He can't get his daughter to go clean her room from her heart with an attitude of wanting to glorify God and to love her neighbor perfectly, perpetually, and personally. He He sees his daughter in there kind of, hurrying up to clean up, shoving this, shoving that, sticking stuff under the bed, right? But it's only through the gospel that we come into this true spiritual, eternal kind of righteousness. Listen to what Dane Ortland says in the book Gentle and Lowly. Love this book. If you guys get a chance to read it, he says this to be justified is to be declared righteous in the sight of God, fully legally exonerated in the divine court based entirely on what Jesus has done in our place. It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into the honest acknowledgement that we never will. That's what it means to be justified by a God who justifies the ungodly, declared righteous, It's totally counterintuitive. The Westminster Catechism says this. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Now listen to this. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. That's the only way that you and I go to heaven. It's the only way that we are saved is God looks down even at your works, which by the way are filthy rags. Your best works and and God looks at you and he declares you righteous. He declares you good, he declares you okay and he brings you in to his family. Pastor Milton says this in the Gospel Primer. This is in the ninth reason to rehearse the gospel. It's talking about resting in Christ's righteousness, a comfort to our fickle, forgetful hearts. He says, quote, the gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God, a standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. And then he goes on. This is a famous part of the primer. On my worst days of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me that God's unrelenting grace uh, uh, towards me. On my best days of victory, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not mine. That's what we're talking about when we talk about biblical justification. It does not make you righteous, and then God looks down and says, oh, you're a good little boy. No, Christ's righteousness is granted to you merely by the instrument of faith, that fork you pick up and you put in your mouth. By the way, God gave you the fork, and then he says, that's my son. I'm looking at Jesus Christ, and now I'm looking at you inside of my son. Let me say one other thing here uh, to to wrap up this point, and this is from the Heidelberg Catechism that we're going through in Sunday school right now. This is, I don't know, let me see, is it my favorite question and answer? It's my favorite, maybe my second favorite. Maybe my third favorite. But it says this. Okay, so the question is, how are you righteous before God? And the answer is just a summary of what these pastors uh, got from the scriptures. But listen to this wonderfully stated answer. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me, right? law keeps accusing. That I've grievously sinned against all the commands of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone to always to all evil. That's Romans 7. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ had fulfilled for me if I only accept such a benefit with a believing heart. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's just insane. If the gospel didn't come, if the gospel wasn't preached to us, nobody in this room, we would never devise this from nature, conscience, or even from the law and the scriptures. We would never devise this. But God comes along and he preaches good news to you and me that, you know, no matter where you stand today, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have a believing heart, your heart right now can be accusing you of all kinds of secret sin. And in a, in a room this large, it is highly likely that many, if not most of you, have things in your conscience where you're like, why did I do that? Why didn't I do this? I've been walking with the Lord how long now? And I'm still struggling with that? Or you guys are all over the map. Some of us in this room, uh, we're not so self-aware and we think we're actually pretty righteous. There's other people around you that know you're not. But... God is in the work and in the business of rubbing you off on, you know, that's part of the body as we kind of rub together and we're kind of sharpening and all of a sudden you think you're super righteous until one of your brothers and sisters comes up and says, Hey, uh, you know, just so you know, you're not as great as you think you are, (laughs) or you've got some things you need to grow in. And then they point you to Christ and say, but nevertheless, guess who you are in Christ. So, We serve a God who justifies the ungodly and he does so not by works, but those who worketh not merely by faith. He declares it. He credits it. He reckons you righteous. He doesn't infuse it. He imparts it to you. It's an alien righteousness that comes outside of you from Christ into you. And by the way, just because you become justified, that doesn't mean suddenly you stop sinning either. That was a big issue during the Reformation is, do justified sinners still sin? And the answer was, yes. And can justified sinners who sin still have assurance of salvation? And the Reformation said, yes. You can have assurance of salvation because you believe in Christ and his righteousness. Now just repent every day. Keep repenting. Keep changing your mind. My sins, yes, they're exactly what God says they are. They're bad. God is exactly who he says he is. He's merciful. He is high above the heavens. His mercy is much higher than yours, much higher than mine. He's by definition a forgiver of sins. Change your mind. Repent. Stop thinking that God will not forgive your sins. Stop thinking that your sins are too bad. Stop thinking that God is a God who justifies the godly. God's a God who just accepts the good people. No, God will take all in. Now let me answer just... Uh, one little devil's advocate type of question. Not that I'm advocating for the devil. And then we're going to wrap it up with some conclusions. The question always comes when you read the book of Romans or the book of Galatians or virtually you know, many other books in the New Testament is, what about James? What about James? I mean, doesn't James seem to say that... Uh, Works are pretty darn important. So how do we reconcile that? I want to encourage you to, first of all, come to Sunday school. We talk about that kind of stuff. But let me give you kind of the brief Cliff Notes version. First of all is Paul and James are using the same terms differently. It's very important. And they're using the same terms differently because they have different audiences. So let me start with the audience first. Paul uses his terms very much in line with what we see in the Old Testament, and the rest of the New Testament, uh, because he's writing to an audience of Galatians and Romans. He's actually trying to protect Gentile believers who have been oppressed by Judaizers who are trying to enforce a justification by works of the law theology. So he's, he's got some axe to grind. The book of Galatians, it's hot, Right. You got people coming in and saying, hey, that's great. You believe in Christ and everything. But what about the law? If you really want to be accepted by God, you got to keep the law. And uh, Paul's like, oh, no, anathema. This is anathema type stuff. All right. James, his audience is very, very different. You read the first chapter of James. Who do you have? It's the diaspora, right? It's Jews, Let me say it this way to help it connect. James is writing to Jewish homeschoolers who have grown up in the church, (laughs) believing that they are sons of Abraham by birth. And some of them are treating their faith in Jesus in the same way as their fathers treated their heritage as Jews. In other words, what what James is arguing is a man, a person raised as a son of Abraham as part of the diaspora, is not justified or is not vindicated by faith, the kind of faith that James is talking about in this context is the same kind of faith of the Shema, like, hey, we believe that God's one. No, the demons believe that. The Abrahamic faith you are now applying to Jesus as the Shema, if it is a living faith, it will be verified by fruit of the Spirit, particularly love of the brethren, right? In other words, your good works will declare your faith righteous if it's a sincere faith. That's what James is arguing. He's looking at people that are kind of like... As James is, is kind of... He brings in the gospel and the new birth and the first chapter and things like that. And the people are kind of like, well, you know, we don't have to love everybody. Right? We can be partial towards the poor. And, you know, Abraham's their big guy. So he goes and he talks about Abraham and reminds them that, yeah, you know, this moon worshiper guy, you know, this this idolater guy. Uh, he Yeah, he believed, Genesis 15... But then he also went and he offered up Isaac as a type of Christ on the cross. And so his faith had some substance to it. You know, Rahab, yeah, that prostitute, yeah, her faith was legit too. But guess what? She didn't turn over the Jews. She didn't turn over believers to the enemies, right? He uses three different examples there. And so let me just summarize real quick what we would say here about this this faith works thing. We acknowledge that faith without works is dead, but that does not mean that works enliven faith. Let me say it again: We acknowledge that faith without works is dead, but that does not mean that works enliven faith. If somebody says they have faith, they're just some kind of homeschool Jewish kid who's like, ah, "I don't have to do anything. I just, you know, it's like this. I believe in Abraham." Uh, well, wait a second. If God doesn't give dead faith as a gift. When he gives out faith, it's a living faith, and that living faith causes people to be alive. And when they're alive, guess what? They do things like they start loving their brother, and they start repenting of sins, and they start forgiving people of their sins, and stuff like that. So works without faith are dead. They can't please God, but faith-based works are alive, but they are not meritorious. James is not saying that if you do works that are based on faith, that that earns you salvation. That's not his argument. And so let me, I'll probably have to email this out. Let me just summarize this last thing here. And then we'll, we'll get in some, some conclusions. And that is this, <clears throat> that our works are produced by the spirit as we are united to Christ. However, our best deeds would be damning sins. If we were to trust in them for merit, we have no right to boast even about our best deeds. Nevertheless, we will be rewarded for our service rendered to Christ because of his mercy and his grace. There's more that could be said on that, but that's how I would answer the James question back to Romans five in our conclusion here in application is that God looks out at us and he doesn't say, okay, get more righteous, get more godly, start getting holy. And then let's talk. He looks at you. He looks at me and he says, I'll die for that. I'll die for that. Christ comes. God grants us righteousness by belief. He declares it unto us. What kind of people does God save? He saves people like Abraham. He saves saves people like King, King Manasseh. There's a story for you look at second chronicles 33 sometime and see the business that god is doing in one of the most wicked kings in the old testament he saves people like you and me and then he because of that declared righteousness he sends his spirit into us and you'll notice in the bible that faith and conscience faith and a good conscience they just juxtapose all over the new testament and and so we see that a that there's a confidence in our conscience when Christ is played there rather than Moses. There's a good conscience that we are granted because we are now declared righteous. And now we can step out in that kind of confidence. You know, it must be the case that salvation is for those who don't deserve it. Because what would you really want with salvation? If you think you already got it and you deserve it, it's for those that don't deserve it. Do you uh, see yourself this morning as a sinner and unworthy of God? If you see yourself as a sinner, then you are in the right place. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You and your household. Let me give a, a warning here by way of application. is, is do your, Does your penance or your penitence commend you before God? Does your penitence commend you before God? Does God look down upon you and say, okay, let's see, is his penance as good as Ahab's or better than Ahab's? And we'll decide whether we'll grant him righteousness or not. Let me quote again from, as you guys can tell, one of my favorite guys, Spurgeon. It does not at first seem most amazing to an awakened man that salvation should be For him as a lost and guilty one. He thinks that it must be for him as a penitent man. Forgetting that his penitence is a part of his salvation. Oh, says he, but I must be this and that. All of which is true. For he shall be this and that as a result of salvation. But salvation comes to him before he has any of the results of salvation. It comes to him, in fact, while he deserves only this bare, beggarly, base, abominable description, ungodly. That is all he is when God's gospel comes to justify him. Do not wait for yourself to repent more or to get more sorrow for sin. You come as yourself and cry out, to God, and he is a God who will justify the ungodly. DeYoung says this, he says, we are justified by faith without deeds of the law. The gospel is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and cooperate with transforming grace and you will be saved. There is nothing we contribute to our salvation but our sin. No merit we bring but Christ's and nothing necessary for justification except faith alone. That makes salvation for you. You know, the story is told in England back in the 1800s. A famous artist was trying to take do paintings of of different parts of London just to kind of get a feel for the city. And uh, there was a real famous street sweeper Uh, back then, you know, there would be street sweepers because when you, you know, you're crossing the street, there's horse and buggies and, you know, they have stuff on the street. And so he would sweep that up. So ladies don't have to walk in it when they're walking across the street. So anyways, a real famous uh, street sweeper who was very poor, and, you know, not, you know, just dirty and, and whatnot. And the artist asked if he would come down to a studio to take his likeness. But when the street sweeper showed up, <clears throat> he was all washed, bathed, his hair was cut. He had a nice suit on. And the artist said, I don't need you. So what are you talking about? You said you wanted to take my likeness. He says, I needed you as a street sweeper, not as a cleaned up guy. And Spurgeon uses that as an analogy of how the Lord and the gospel is calling all y'all. He's not asking you to clean your life up and then come to him. You come to him, he declares you righteous with the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone, you worketh not. And then he sends his spirit and he begins to slowly do this work in your life to teach you how to love one another, to teach you how to forgive sins. He makes you more and more aware Your conscience begins to be appeased. And then you slip back into this conscience problem, and then the Spirit comes in and ministers to you through the body. And then you just step by step, you go up, you go down. You're always righteous. And then one day you die. One day you die. And the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And on what basis does he say that? You will know that it's Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your wisdom. We would have never drum thought up such a system by which unrighteous people could be made righteous and come into your family and inherit eternal life. Lord, our lost hearts still buck against it. Lord, we pray that your spirit even now would help us to believe the truth that we are righteous not on account of anything that we do, not on account of any righteousness of our own, but only on account and for the sake of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for those here that may not know you. Lord, that your spirit would do the work only that only you can do. That, Lord, if there are those that feel like they are too sinful, that they would see that that's exactly the kind of person that you forgive. Lord, if there are those here who don't see their sin, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, if there are those that are here that think they are righteous, like the Pharisee, looking at other people, thanking you that they don't behave in such ways, we pray, Lord, that you would grant them humility and repentance. We thank you so much, Lord, that our salvation is from faith to faith, beginning to end, Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.